0: You know, being an entrepreneur is a constant tug-of-war between humility and um, arrogance, so.
1: (laughs) Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneur's and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight my guest today is shayan desharkar a political tech entrepreneur who's the ceo and co-founder of blue squad which built a relational organizing software tool for democrats and is now creating a political social network for organizing i spoke with Cheyenne about how he's taking his business and technology skills already has an interesting and successful enterprise called datafinity into the political world i'm very curious to see how blue squad takes shape over the next cycle and beyond and hope you'll listen to his story so after a quick word from our sponsor my interview with shayan de with blue squad Shion, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. So I am uh, born and raised in Texas, uh, originally from Houston. Went to school at Carnegie Mellon to study computer science. Uh, after that, I wanted to get into um, technology and, and business. Uh, no one would uh, pay me to do both at the same time, so I just started my own Uh, consulting business and uh, basically hired myself. Different companies in Houston uh, uh, worked with me to uh, I would basically um, build custom software mostly for energy companies in Houston. My family actually has a pretty strong presence in the uh, oil and energy uh, space in Houston. So kind of grew up around all that, had my early career helping technology doing that. Um, After a while I got little tired and bored and uh, conflicted about doing that. (laughs) So I uh, started looking for other things, um, ended up uh, joining another firm that was doing a pure kind of data technology play in Houston. I started a business out of that called Datafinity, which was basically a kind of a Google for data. We turn information on the web into Highly structured data sets, uh, and then basically allow companies to integrate that data into whatever products they're building. So, did that for several years, um, still have that running. Uh, and then in uh, 2016, had a bit of a wake up call and um, started getting deeply invested into politics. And that's a whole other story from there.
1: <laughs> Let me ask you a couple questions about that beginning. And first of all, I seem to be running into a number of Carnegie Mellon grads lately that have found their way into politics. It sounds like you mixed business and computer science there. How was that four years for you?
0: CMU was one of the more intense, rigorous experiences of my life. Um, In high school, I kind of coasted through and, you know, like was top of class and stuff like that. And when I got to CMU, I learned what being smart actually meant.
1: <laughs> there's always levels.
0: Yeah, there's always someone better than you. And at CMU, there were many of those people. <laughs> yeah, it was a very intense experience. Um, the computer science program at CMU is no joke. It is basically being thrown into the deep end of like rigorous mathematical proofs and concepts and all that kind of stuff. It was good, though, because I, I think the thing that I – took out of CMU was a very good understanding of how to learn and develop fundamentals, particularly in computer science and technology, but really anywhere. I learned how to like break down problems into discrete pieces and then build them back up. So I understood the whole of the thing and kind of apply that to business too. Um, You can take like a new field, a new market, and you can figure out how to break that down into like the sort of core principles of what's happening in that market. And then you can try and tackle what's, you know, where, where are the inefficiencies in that? Honestly, that's kind of what I've been trying to do with some of I've been working on the political stuff. So um, yeah, that was the key thing from CMU, I think.
1: I don't know how common it is, but it's not totally common to have both those kind of technical chops and the skills and broader interest in sort of running things or uh, communicating with other people about concepts and leading and so on. Has that always been like something that you put together? That's something you had to work to develop? To be honest,
0: I don't have like a natural interest in like leading and running things. What happens is that I see things that I think should exist and no one is doing them. And I look around and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll just do it. So that's happened many times in my life with, with data affinity my first real business. Um, you know, it was like, here's a cool idea. I think this should exist and I'm going to do it. It was a crazy, kind of proposition of the time, basically like structuring all the data on the web. And I was like, I think this thing should exist. And I think a lot of people could use it. And I've been, you know, proven right over the time. But I learned skills along the way. I have made a lot of mistakes um, running a company and stuff like that.
1: Um, we all have.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> um, Yeah, it's, it's not been like a, a natural thing. Um, it's more of like trial by error and trial by fire, really.
1: You mentioned, and it just intrigued me that you that you mentioned your family has a position in the oil and gas space. What does that mean? Like, are they do they run companies? Are they investors? What are you talking about there?
0: You know, this is funny. Like being in progressive politics is something that I knew was always going to come up at some point. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) Well, you also said you you started to have some doubts about being in that sector. I guess after a few years working there.
0: To start off, like. our family's business um, is primarily providing chemical products to operators, uh, well sites, things like that, primarily in the drilling space. They're involved a lot in fracturing. So they've been in that space for a very long time before it was even like a, the big thing it is now. And they've rode that wave, that market, to a lot of success as a person straight out of college looking to start his own thing, or, or I guess being forced to start his own thing. I leveraged that and you know used that to get early contracts and things like that. I built a lot of software for those companies on my own, um, and it was used for a very long time to pretty good success. At a certain point, I started losing interest in doing that. I wanted to get into more sort of pure technology plays. Helping uh, an oil field company um, bring down their cost of quality control by like twenty percent was not super compelling to me after like a few years. So,
1: but didn't you then go get an MBA somewhere in there?
0: Yeah, so I I was looking for something new, and so during that process, I I went to get an MBA at Rice. Um, was transitioning out of my consultancy business during that time, um, and that's when I. Joined a venture group in Houston that became, through a bunch of different steps, DataFinity.
1: Do you recommend an MBA? How was that for you? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, if you are looking for a career change and you know exactly what career industry you want to go into, yes, I recommend an MBA. If you just want to learn how to run a business or you know business topics, just go on YouTube. Yeah. I I like to say that MBA school is like all the common sense you didn't have.
1: Any particular thing or class that you took from that time at Rice getting the MBA that sticks with you?
0: This is a bad answer, but honestly, no. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it really, like, like when you, any business topic in MBA school is like really like it's really simple. You just have never thought to think that way before, right? Like supply and demand, organizational behavior, accounting. It's all very, very simple stuff. You just have to be exposed to it.
1: Well, maybe being exposed to it has some value.
0: It does. It does. It's just that I don't know if you pay like sixty to eight thousand dollars for that or however much it costs now, right? So. Yeah.
1: Well, I don't know what, what it does for people. When you're hiring and you see someone with an MBA, does that... Uh, raise them in your estimation, or lower them, or what do you think?
0: I don't know if I've actually ever seen an MBA on a resume for someone. You're, like you're it's, always it's like, hiring tech people. I'm mostly hiring tech people, like salespeople and stuff like that. Honestly, typically don't have MBAs; they just have like real world experience, right? I don't know what I would think. It'd really depend on like. I think it would not be like a critical factor. It would be like a cherry on top, maybe, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious. There's this thing called 80 Legs and you join and and then kind of bring it into datafinity. Tell me about that kind of process.
0: So I, I joined this venture group called Crearious Ventures in Houston during my MBA time. Um, it was kind of an interesting company. They were trying to do kind of like a portfolio venture thing in-house. And so we were trying out different technologies, seeing if you could build businesses out of them. One of them was this like fully distributed computing platform idea, like kind of like a city at home kind of volunteer compute network, right? So we had some ideas around that and I joined and through part hustle, part luck, I managed to get a partnership with like a game company. And all of a sudden like we had like 50,000 computers um, volunteering their time into this network. And so we're like, oh, okay. So, what do we actually do with this now? Um, and it turned out that like web crawling could be a pretty interesting application because you've got all this like sort of quote unquote free bandwidth uh, all of a sudden available. So, out of that, we uh, built a web crawling service called Eighty Legs. Um, basically, people could spin up their own web crawlers uh, really easily and get like really like kind of hyperscale data collection going. Um,
1: that's one big spider. How, how come eighty?
0: It's just a kitschy, you know, spider. There's more than one. I don't know. It was, you know, it worked. Like 10 it was memorable. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, yeah. So we did that, and um, we had quite a few companies using eighty legs, and then uh, what I realized was a lot of those companies were basically asking us to use 80 legs ourselves to collect the same kinds of data. So like product listings, business listings, all that kind of stuff. You know, I was thinking to myself, you know, we're, we're kind of a middleman to ourselves here. This is kind of weird. Um, I think people actually would pay more and have more value coming out of just the data itself. So, you know, I'm always trying to like, get at like, what's the core thing they're trying to solve? And they didn't really, like web problem was just a means to an end. So I was like, why don't we just give them the data straight up? Um, And so, but to do that, we would have to basically pre-collect everything, normalize it, store it, make it highly uh, accessible. And so I basically ended up acquiring the IP from 80legs from Crearis and then turned it into Datafinity. And then we went on a, a long journey of kind of building out that technology and proving out that concept.
1: Tell me about building that company a little bit. Like, did you raise capital? How'd you build it up?
0: It was basically self-funded. Um, so we had some leftover capital from Crearis um, and then we kind of like self-funded. It was a long process. The idea of like, you know, this really small team collecting data from the entire, basically building like a mini Google, right? Yeah. Um, seems
1: very ambitious.
0: It was like, Stupidly ambitious. (laughs) It's it's, it was it was like the wrong way to build a company because like usually you're supposed to like have a very specific niche, right, and like solve that one thing really well. And we were like, we're going to solve all the things instead. (laughs) Because like the the idea was, I thought it was really cool that like if we could make this data very accessible, people could build all sorts of new things on top of it. At the time, like cloud computing was becoming very big and I saw that and I was like, this is a thing where like, if you kind of described it on its own, you'd be like, that sounds really hard and like, why would anyone use that? But it actually turns out to empower all these other infinite array of things, right? It's a scaling technology. And so I wanted to do that with Datafinity, but for, for data. Um, but that meant building a very robust platform um, without attacking any one specific market, right? And so that was very risky. It took us many iterations and many attempts on both the technology and the business approach to figure out how to do that. But we did get there. And so now we have a pretty robust business around that, um, very scalable platform. We probably have some of the largest data sets in the verticals we focus on, like in the world. Um, And we have all these really cool use cases that sit on top of it. Everything from like fraud prevention to investment analysis to market research and things I had never thought of, which is
1: amazing. Amazing when you, when you come up with something and, and the things that it can solve, you hadn't even thought of that.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, it's basically like, I mean, it's like a piece of Play-Doh, right? Like Play-Doh can be anything and yet it's nothing, right? And uh, that's just fascinating to me, right?
1: Give me some specifics about a particular use case.
0: My favorite one um, is we have a handful of uh, retail telecom companies. So people selling phones, right? They have our data integrated into their system so that when someone places an order online and they put in like their shipping address, if that address matches a home that is for sale, that is a bad sign, right? Because that is indicative of someone trying to ship something to an empty home. And so they pull that live sort of listing data from us and then it flags potential fraud in their system. So I love that example because no one I described that to has ever thought of that before, but when they hear it, it makes a ton of sense right away. And it's obviously like hugely uh, impactful for any business, right? And it, any like shipping or online business could use that, right?
1: Yeah. How big has that company become?
0: Um, we're still kind of a small operation, like in terms of manpower, Um so the team is like under 10 people right now, but we're serving you know dozens and dozens of, of clients right now um, in a whole bunch of different industries. And the business itself has kind of gotten to a place where it's growing at a pretty predictable rate right now. It's still small, but it's, it's growing quickly. And it's clearly just like scratching the surface of all these things I've talked about. It's gonna keep growing and it's fun to see that happen.
1: What do you want to do with it? Do you want to uh, sell it to Google? Do you want to just uh, continue to run it and watch it get bigger? What's what is, what's your goal there?
0: I guess the cool thing about mostly self-funding is I kind of have flexibility on what to do there. Um, so there's a lot of options. We could keep it running and it could just kind of be like, you know, a cash generator for itself or anything else. Um we have had some like informal acquisition offers and stuff like that. Nothing too compelling just yet. I'm trying to get into a place where uh the team itself, uh it's kind of like an incubator for their own development so they can grow into more senior roles, um, lead more of the operations, stuff like that, and take it to wherever they want to take it.
1: So what do you think you through these various startups? have learned about entrepreneurship that is useful in the political space?
0: Useful in the political space. Um, well, I was going to say that I've learned that I don't really know a lot. I mean, I think mean, that's important. Um, I think a lot of people who get into politics, and I am guilty of this too, like have ideas for like how things should run and have, you know, some pretty heavy assumptions of things. It's very important to, like, keep listening, keep talking to people to try and dispel those assumptions so that you can, you know, provide more value yourself and be in a better position to provide value. Um,
1: so you've you've kept some amount of humility, even though being fairly successful.
0: Uh, I guess. I mean, you know, being an entrepreneur is a constant Tug of war between humility and um, arrogance. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a great line, honestly. You mentioned that around 2016 you started to get politicized. I'm assuming that's Trump related. What's going on in your head around that time?
0: I guess like this sounds like weird and cliche, but like being Texan, you know, growing around the energy field. I I was raised by a bunch of like good old boys, right? Um, You have this idea of like what it means to be American. And being in whatever that, you know, childhood bubble was, you know, I wasn't really exposed to some of the various, you know, injustices and inequities in our society. But I was raised with this like idea of like, all like the kind of good things about being American, working, that paying off, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so when 2016, when the election happens, it basically like shattered all those beliefs. Um, and since like you know quote unquote being American was like a part of my identity, it was basic it at least broke my own identity, right? And so what about it? It meant that like I didn't understand the people in my culture. I, I had false assumptions about my own beliefs. It meant I was a lot more ignorant than I realized.
1: Because you were really surprised that we would, as a country or a lot of us, be follow this man?
0: Yeah. I mean, a majority of the country voted for him. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, enough. He became right? the president. Yeah. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. You're right. Not, not a majority, but enough of.
1: An electoral college majority.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know the next morning I'm like walking around like looking at people like with a different view right like i don't I don't know if I should trust this person like everything becomes doubt, you know it,
1: it shook a lot of us pretty hard,
0: yeah, so there was a big part of me that like i didn't i realized I didn't understand all of a sudden and so like I really felt the need to rectify that. I still like you know crystal clear remember that morning I just like I was about to like step in the shower and I just like fell down and started, like, sobbing for, like, 10 minutes, right? Yeah. So um, at the same time, though, like, I guess, you know, being an entrepreneur, you're like, I'm going to do something about this, right? So after I took my shower, I uh, started doing some, like, Google searching, started looking for, like, local meetups. Basically, my first foray into, like, any part of the real political world, One I found and was most compelling to me was Battleground, Texas. Um, So they came up on some searches and, you know, I read the thing about them wanting to just register more voters, Texas being a non-voting state versus a red state. That sounded really interesting. Um, So, and they had like a meetup coming up like that weekend or something. So I went to that, obviously it was very well attended um, and there was just people just expressing themselves. You know, the hooks got more and more into me. That was also kind of like f- some f- firsthand for the, like for the first time exposure to people from different walks of life, right? Um, different cult different subcultures, um, different perspectives. Um, it was definitely kind of a stepping out of the bubble kind of moment, And so, you know, that just drew me in further. It was either that meeting or like the next week's meeting or something like that. They went into like how campaigns are run and like how canvassing works and that kind of stuff. And that was my first tutorial for that kind of stuff. Um, And so that was really fascinating. We talked about some of the, you know, assumption or hubris people can bring into the space. And, you know, I started thinking like, oh, are we doing things the best way here? This sounds uh, maybe not the best way. Um, So some of those doubts started to creep in. And then, yeah, so just kind of kept doing that and building on top of that um, over the next like several months and years.
1: And then what did you do?
0: I remember doing one of the meetings. um, I think one of the organizers said that, you know, these lists we get for like phone banking and block walking, they're about 10% accurate or something like that. You know, being a data person, I was like, whoa, what? When they were describing phone banking, I was like, this is basically a sales operation. You know, you're doing cold calling to people and asking them to do something. Um, And I was thinking as a business person, I was like, man, if I told my sales team that the list, the lead list they're getting is like 10% accurate, they just like quit, right? I was like, maybe I can help from this angle, right? Maybe there's some way to address if we can address this upstream problem, there's like huge downstream benefits, right? And so because of that, I started talking to folks here in Austin that I knew were a little more politically connected. Um, I had a friend, Michelle, who put me in touch with um, some folks at the state party. Eventually started talking to Cliff Walker, who had been working at the party at that time. And I just got more and more understanding of, sort of the technology and operational aspects of running a campaign and wanted to help campaigns from that angle. I volunteered on like a state house race here, eventually ended up, um, working on Joseph Copser's 2018 congressional run, um, here in Texas 21. So, uh, it was around that time that I started playing with these ideas of like, you know, instead of like contacting strangers, maybe we can contact our friends, family, and, you know, a media network. Didn't know the term at the time was called relational organizing, but sort of independently developed that concept while other people were also doing the same thing. Um, and so we actually ended up trying, trialing that with Joseph's campaign. <laughs> I, I, I met, you know, Jeremy Smith uh, during this time. And he, he was also like, yeah, we definitely need to try this thing out. And um, yeah, we did a funny thing. We asked all the volunteers on Justice campaign to literally export their Gmail, LinkedIn, and Facebook data Uh, give it to us. And then we mashed it against like the voter file, the early voting records, things like that. And then basically automated like individualized messages that they could use with those people to say like, Hey, you haven't registered yet. Hey, you haven't voted yet. That kind of stuff. It was like kind of a multi-year stepwise journey of like, let me learn about this issue. What are the, what's going on here? Let's try this process. Solution out, see how that works, iterate on that. And that eventually culminated in us uh, building like a whole app around it that became Blue Squad. So we basically built like a relational organizing tool and a company around that um, to try and expand that thing that if we get tried with Joseph's campaign.
1: You mentioned Jeremy Smith. Uh, he's been on the show a couple of times, uh, has a company called Civitech. He's become a player in the political tech space. You have him listed as a co-founder of Blue Squad. What's that relationship there, um, and why is he important?
0: Yeah, so uh, Jeremy and I um, and another person, Steve, who's no longer with the company, we all co-founded Blue Squad during um, you know Joseph's campaign. Jeremy was very helpful in getting me exposed to some of the, the deeper operational aspects of the campaign helped us trial out the things. And since then has been very helpful in uh, helping us establish partnerships um, with different folks in the space, um, provide introductions, things like that. And has been a tremendous source of help for, like for me to just like get questions answered, like how does this thing in politics work, right? Or like, what's this person's deal? You know, that kind of thing. And so being a relative outsider um, is helpful to have someone like that with a company that can answer a lot of things without us having to like you know fall on our faces.
1: There were multiple relational organizing tool companies that started up around the same time, some maybe a little earlier that you know got funding, um, made a go of it a lot of them now have sold or combined with other entities, what did you see the competitive space like and how did you guys do in that space?
0: Yeah, I would say we were um, probably the latest entrant into the space. I think folks like um, Impacted, they were called Outvote of Time, Reach, Outreach Circle, Tuesday Company. They had been around for like at least one or two years before us. I think by the time we entered, they had all kind of had like one cycle beneath their belts. To be honest, like we entered the space not fully knowing all of their positions. Um, we we're like, this is working here. We're going to try it out. Um, we had a ton of success, particularly in Texas, right? Um, we had a bunch of state house races use us, um, many different organizations and advocacy groups here, a lot of different like voter registration and get out the vote stuff. I think during the 2020 cycle, we had about 40 campaigns, organizations use us, um, several thousand users, hundreds of thousands of reachable voters, that kind of stuff. So it felt good. It showed that the approach that we had could work. At the same time, we did see some limitations to overall like digital relational organizing. And I think we saw that with the other players as well. There are things that you could do to push it out. Basically what it came down to, I think is that like relational organizing in its, in the forms that we were taking and some of the competitors were taking, it had a limited impact. Uh, You could push it with like a lot of training and a lot of investment from a campaign, but that was asking a lot of a campaign to do for something that was kind of a newer effort, untested, that kind of thing. So we kind of exited the 2020 cycle, really thinking about whether or not how we were doing things was the right approach and questioning if the other companies in the space had like long-term viability. We saw some of that play out with some of them, you know, getting acquired, some of them, semi-shutting down kind of thing. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of questions right now around the current approach uh, with digital relational
1: organizing. So what are you guys doing?
0: So we went back to the Durham board. We still offer the current Blue Squad tool for campaigns that want to take that approach. But we're also trying to work on something different. So... I had always been interested in the idea of like, how do we go from what has traditionally been a kind of transactional list based approach to outreach um, to something that is more representative of like how real political power is shaped, which is more at like the one to one community level, right? If we're trying to persuade, a friend to do something political or civic. We have to come from a position of trust and credibility. And that's not really how most campaigns reach voters, in my opinion. It's more of like, hey, we need this thing right now. Will you help us?
1: Big campaigns that have to deal with very large constituencies, maybe. Not so much someone running for sheriff in a small town is going to go walk around and talk to people, but someone running for Congress.
0: So what I've always been interested in is like, how do we take that small scale approach and make it bigger, right? But still preserve that intimacy because that, I mean, for me, that's like where real power comes from, right? Relational organizing was like an attempt to scale that. We, it had some success, but it had some limitations as well. I went back to the darn board and I was like, okay, what things do we know are out there that can actually scale community really well? So it turns out that we actually kind of live with a, a technology that does that, and that's social networking, right? Social networking is incredibly powerful at Letting someone that has something interesting to say build an audience or build a community around that thing and build this incredibly high degree of trust in whatever that person or that group represents. There's a bunch of sort of techniques and tricks that social networking tools use to do that. But at the end of the day, what you have is you're effectively modeling what we all do on like a one-to-one in-person basis, but you have a digital infrastructure around that, right? So you've got uh, different communication tools, chat, comments, etc. You have sharing of information, you're, you have propagation information, and there's different ways that different social networks do that. But basically in the, the day, what you're doing is you have systems that are enabling people to take that, one-to-one interaction and then magnify it dramatically. Um, And so we've seen this happen in a lot of different spaces, like particularly media consumption. And so I started thinking, like, how can we do this around political engagement and do it in a way that makes more sense, provides the tools for organizers, activists, and so on. Um, So what we're doing now is we're actually working on a new product that will be doing this. Will effectively be a social network for organizers and activists and such. Um, it has very different mechanics to what like other social networks have out there. Those are like specific to what tools like we think an activist organizer would need. But in the, the day, it's going to be a place where we hope um, someone who's like maybe like a fresh activist, right, and they just have an issue that they care a lot about. It'll be a place for them to build an audience or community, you know, at a small scale at first, but if they continue to do interesting, compelling things, that platform will help them build that and continue to engage those people, those stakeholders and grow that and grow that and grow that.
1: So that particular idea, at least loosely as you've articulated, has surfaced over and over in this space. It's been something that presidential campaigns have tackled. There was like my Barack Obama back in 08. There's there've been a, a variety of of people who've raised money to start political social networks and built them out sometimes at a lot of expense. It's tended not to have long legs. I've always thought it's it's a good idea that hasn't been sort of tackled from the right angle or met the moment in the right way for one reason or another. One of the problems of course, is that people are on other social networks. And so creating a new one, you sort of have to get to critical mass and how do you, how do you get all those people on it? Right. You had a a fairly as good a chance as you're going to get when you have a presidential campaign with all the people paying attention to it and trying to do it. But how do you combine that across lots of campaigns? Uh, and make it a place people want to go when politics sort of ebbs and flows and people are elsewhere on on Instagram or Facebook or you know TikTok or something how do you think about like finding a place for this tech that will get critical mass and people will want to be there using the kind of tools that you would surround them with
0: yeah so there's a couple things to Touch on there. Um, So, like you mentioned, like um, presidential campaign attempts at these, right? So, my thought on that is those aren't really social networks, right? Those are sort of siloed attempts, right? Within a specific topic or interest, they don't really give full control and flexibility to the end user, right? So if you want like a true social network, you have to give over control to the individual to kind of fully create their own stuff and be creative about what they want to do, right? So our approach is going to be uh, fully decentralized, right? So there won't be any one specific issue or a campaign that's kind of driving the whole thing. It's anything that the person wants to do. There's obviously going to be community guidelines and moderation and stuff like that. But um, just like you can, you know, tweet whatever you want to tweet uh, you know, you can create whatever you want to create in this new network.
1: How do you keep it then from being hijacked by uh, trolls? and Yeah.
0: That, yeah. That's obviously the trade off you take on with that. Um, and so that's going to be a constant, always kind of arms race kind of battle with moderation, community work, stuff like that. Um, We have some ideas for how, at least early on, to control that with things like invites and stuff like that.
1: Do you see this as like a partisan tool or do you see this as uh, any comer for any issue?
0: Yeah, I definitely don't think of it as a partisan tool. Um, I think of it as an organizing and activism tool, right? And if... The thing you want to organize around is a political campaign, that's totally fine. You can also organize around, you know, animal rights or um, some sort of city behind issue. I don't know, anything like that, right?
1: Would it then encompass both, say, pro-Trump people and anti-Trump people? Or are you thinking about any uh, guardrails about what people can be advocating
0: we will have community guidelines in place as a company. There are certain types of ideas and beliefs that we have. And so those will get represented in our community guidelines. Um, so there will be some limitation on the kinds of things that you can promote on the platform. We want it to be as open as possible, uh, but it's, yeah, we're not going to support things like overthrowing the government and things like that. So.
1: But be more specific about my particular question. Like, is it going to be allowing pro-Trump organizing on there? I'm just asking because of how you originally came into this space, which was kind of horrified by what was going on. So how are you thinking about that?
0: I do not see a place for pro-Trump organizers on this network, because that is heavily linked with beliefs that would be contrary to what we're trying to do as a company and as an organization.
1: It sounds like you it requires an awful lot of decisions. It's a tricky situation, right? How do you decide what goes and what doesn't? And you're seeing some of the platforms like Twitter and Facebook facing that and It's hard for them to make those calls. It would be hard for you to make those calls at scale.
0: By no means do I want to say that it's going to be easy. It's going to be a very hard thing, right? Um, I think one thing that will be a little different for us is that we will have specific guidelines around what kinds of things can be posted on there um, that are more direct than what, like, a Twitter or Facebook will do. So Twitter and Facebook, for example, they're – trying to take like a fully like laissez-faire sort of libertarian approach to it right um and we're definitely not going to do that
1: i think they've they've drawn some line at certain kinds of misinformation
0: they've been been pressured into that right um they've they've come they've started from a point of like we don't want to do anything and they're like people really hate us so we're going to do something about this right whereas we'll be like these are some specific beliefs that we have as a company and if we feel that Um, individuals on our network are uh, working against these things, we will be more direct in like moderating them or banning them. So we're starting from a, a different position than they are. And that might change over time, right? As we kind of get experience, but yeah, it's a different starting point from them.
1: So why would someone want to get on this network once you have it built? What would compel them to be there?
0: So we've been doing a lot of, uh, feedback sessions with potential organizers or, active, or the adopters of this platform. Um, we've done like 200 or so sessions so far. And the feedback we're getting is that they are seeing what we have as a much more powerful tool for organizing over like a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They see it as a way that they can provide clear actions to take for their volunteers, the people that support them, Um, and basically the tooling that we're providing in this product is very specific to what their needs are as an organizer. It's a great blend of social platforms and organizing tools, and so they think that they can have kind of all those things together in one place.
1: When other people have tried to do this, and they've made it sort of citizen-facing, and they've struggled a bit with building up critical mass, one of the ways they've solved that or tried to solve it is by turning it into something which is a tool you could white label to a particular organization that wants to create its social network, right? Have you thought about that?
0: Yeah, I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I mean, um, it's, it's just the only reason I ask is it's just super hard to get to a lot of people using something like this. Have you looked at the Mobilize example, though, which yeah. is related? What What do you think of how they went about kind of creating a place for people to go organize?
0: It's the same thing, right? Like, so are you talking about like for Mobilize, like just the event stuff, or are you talking about the white label thing?
1: Well, both, right? Okay. What, they, what they've put together collectively.
0: Um, so for the white label stuff in particular, like, I think, yeah, that decision uh, I think is often being made because the business is under constraints, right? And has to figure out a solution. You know, at this point, I'm super committed to trying and figuring out how to scale from a fully kind of open network. I, I really do believe that, whitelisting ends up being a silo and then you're basically capping off the potential growth of that thing, right? A network's value comes from the network. And if you're like clearly limiting the scope of that network, you're going to have limited value. Mobilize is interesting because I think they've honestly done the best so far in something similar to this. They've focused specifically on events, but they have social features around that. Um, which is I think helped make the events feature you know be more successful. So I'm not sure how much of that is a specific strategy on their part, but I think it's gotten the closest to what we're talking about here. So if anything, I think that's a sign that there is potential with the right mix of you know timing, interest, feature set, and that kind of stuff.
1: If things go the way you'd most like, what will this look like in five years?
0: It will look. Like people wondering why we spend time on other social networks because those are just passive mindless consumption tools and this is a place where people are actually working together to take action and doing real things.
1: Give me an example of something that I could do theoretically in five years if I came on your network
0: this podcast, right, would uh, have specific actions coming off of it, right? So you had a guest and they're doing something interesting. You would have an account on this network. They would have an account on this network, right? You would be able to sort of cross-promote each other, but that promotion would include specific ways to affect change on both of your interests. Like what? So if their interest is registering voters, right? They could create they would have specific actions around voter registration that you could then reshare or then build on top of with your own adjustments or remixes, you know we would call them. Folks who are in that in the guest audience would, you know, have an affinity to their actions but they could then see how you're making tweaks to those things and resharing it and they might come over to you and take different kinds of actions. And that would kind of build up on top of it. and that those audience would then sort of cross pollinate, but it all be centered around the different things that you guys are trying to accomplish as organizations.
1: Will it pull in the relational stuff that you built for blue squad? Would that be part of what they can do?
0: Yeah. Um, so there are going to be a lot of relational pieces to it. So you can like sync your contacts and stuff. If you want to, you sure. don't have to, and you can, uh, you know, work on individuals that you know there. Right. And then, there'll be ways for the organizers you follow to help direct who in your network to reach out to and stuff like that.
1: Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have about this?
0: We're currently in uh, alpha development right now um, and we're trying to get more people to give us feedback on the product. So if if folks are interested in that, they can reach out to us and sign up for a session.
1: How do they do that?
0: Uh, So the easiest way is to go to our website. They can go to bluesquad.co slash version three. And there is a sign up form there. Um, And they can get a 30-minute session to check out the product and uh, be part of our early adopter program.
1: I like talking to people who are in, in the midst of creating something. and. Really enjoyed chatting with you about your plans today. Anything else you want to say? Uh,
0: No, it's been a pleasure. It is fun to talk about it. Uh, There's definitely so many things that have potential in this space. And I think there's a lot of like untapped opportunity. People always say that there's too much money in politics, right? Yet politics like affects everything we do, right? Yeah.
1: And so- There isn't. As much money in politics as there is in promoting whatever Procter and Gamble makes, and
0: I think at the end of the day, like there's just a really clear opportunity to make just regular engagement in our society be a more regular habit. I think all of us in this space are basically trying to solve that problem in some way or fashion, right? I think that's what what has drawn me in this space. What's kept me here is that. I think we're all trying to like work on how to basically adjust human behavior in some small way towards action versus, you know, passivity. That's a fascinating thing to be working on.
1: Well, I hope we can talk again after you have made more progress and have some big cohort trying to do things in this and we'll see.
0: Yeah, definitely. That'll be fun.
1: Well, good to talk to you. That was Cheyenne Desharkar. Cheyenne is at bluesquad.co. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.